All right, welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Today we are very privileged to be able to uh, interview Jameis Buck. Uh, I guess first I should say I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach of topfunky.com. And Jameis uh, has quite a tall stature in the Ruby community and definitely in the Rails community. He is the author of quite a few different uh, classes, modules, and gems, uh, including CAPTCHA, NetSSH, uh, SQLite Driver, uh, Genealogical Module, uh, Syntax Highlighter, uh, many other things. And uh, finally, you may know him f- uh, recently for development work on Switch Tower, which is very exciting for all of us who want an easy way to install and deploy our Rails applications. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, I'm looking through my list, and I, your uh, list of accomplishments is longer <laughs> than my piece of paper, so I'm sure I've <laughs> left out a few things. But uh, to start with, I'm not sure if you realize this, but you're the first American to be interviewed on the Ruby on Rails podcast. <laughs> no kidding. How's that? The first okay. non-European. Cool. So. That's uh, you'll have to add that to your uh, list of accolades right there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> cool. To start out, uh, how did you discover Ruby? Um, you've been a big part of the Ruby community for a while. How did that start? You know, I, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was probably around 2000 or 2001. I was just dabbling in a variety of different programming languages and. Uh, encountered Python, and was fairly enamored of that for a couple of months until I grew exceedingly sick and tired of the the white space. Okay. And uh, so it, that led me to start looking for other other things, and I came across Ruby. Um, it was interesting because when I first came across Ruby, it was, you know, I think the pickaxe, the first version of the pickaxe had just been published. And it was available online, and that was about the only English documentation I could find. And so it was, it was a lot more challenging to learn Ruby then than it is now, I think. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it seems like it. Uh, there's a completely different uh, Japanese Ruby culture that a lot of us non-Japanese speakers don't really even uh, aren't really even aware of. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um. Yeah, I'd love to. Maybe uh, sometime we can interview the Japanese Dave Thomas over there in Japan. Who knows? Yeah, that'd be cool. Who's documenting it over there? I think there's a lot. I mean, there's, there's a lot of books in Japanese on Ruby, so I don't know that there'd be just one significant author, but I have no idea. Well, um, you uh, obviously... T- uh, ton of things we could talk about jumping around here you were uh got on pretty early with rails uh we're the first author that has and belongs to many um uh, someone on irc said hasn't hasn't belongs to many is the frankenstein of rails and definitely that's kind of a hard concept for anybody to understand in any kind of database the many-to-many relationship and yet it seems like even the newest edge rails, a lot has been done to make uh, has belongs to many a lot more uh, 
powerful. Tell us about just just starting that off. Um, why did you pick that as one of the first things to do for Rails? Well, um, this was like probably would have been a year ago, uh, maybe a little less than a year ago. And David had just released the first public release of Rails and was getting a few people to look at it. He'd contacted me because of my work on the SQLite bindings, and uh, and so we we corresponded a little bit, and he kept trying to get me to look at Rails, um, try it out, and I was rather uh, stubborn and uh, had other projects like my dependency injection stuff. But I finally did take a look at Active Record specifically, and the one thing... I was working at BYU at the time and doing a lot of stuff with databases, um, well, uh, uh, database-driven applications, and... Uh, one of the things we did a lot with were the join tables, and that was one of the things I didn't see an easy way to do an active record, and so I mentioned it to, to David. He's like, well, yeah, if you, if you write a patch, I'll, I'll, I'll consider applying it, and so, and so I did. But uh, it's interesting because very little, if any, of my original code on the hasn't belongs to many stuff is actually still in Rails. Okay. It's been, it's been significantly rewritten several times since then. Now, someone I was talking to on IRC said that, you know, with the newest edge rails, um, well, like in the current 13.1 or whatever, you can't do very complicated finds on a uh, hasn't belongs to many. But in edge rails, it's expanded quite a bit, and you can do a lot of that. Are you still working on that, or has somebody else picked that up and uh, developed it? Um a lot of the core team has contributed bits and pieces to hasn't belongs to many. I think, uh, in fact, I don't even know who the author of the current implementation is. It's probably David, but I'm not sure. But um, I, I haven't done very much with it. I've I finally gotten to the point where I understand it, so I could probably start doing more with it. But uh, it is definitely a complex bit of code. Um, and it just keeps getting more complicated as more feature requests come in and bugs get found. It's definitely one of the more complicated parts of Rails. But yeah, I, I haven't done very much with it myself. All right. Well, definitely a very, uh, very useful part of a relation, relational database in general, it and it's hard to imagine Rails without that kind of capability. Yeah, well, if I hadn't suggested it, someone else would have, I'm sure. So. Yeah. It's, it's pretty... Pretty crucial, I think. Well, uh, <clears throat> flying right along here, uh, and now you're working for uh, a company called 37 Signals, and mm-hmm. um, sometimes I get the picture that uh, maybe David is all over the world uh, promoting, <laughs> giving lectures, uh, <coughs> evangelizing, and uh, you're kind of Back at the uh, back at the fort, keeping the woodpile stacked, keeping the fire <laughs> burning, and keeping everybody happy. Um, and you you also uh, work from your home. What kind of advice would you give for uh, people working from home or with teams that are all over the world? Um, the key is to really not to be afraid to communicate. Like if you have any questions or. Anything you're not sure about, be sure and ask questions because it's really easy when you're just communicating via 
written communications, whether it's instant messaging or email, it's really easy to misunderstand. Or if you're communicating to someone, it's easy to give the wrong impression. And so, uh, yeah, you, you really want to make sure you understand something before you, you jump in and, and uh, yeah, be careful of assumptions and so forth. So that's the big thing. Don't be afraid of instant messaging is a huge one. I, I can't imagine doing what we do at 37 Signals without something like instant messaging to, to have that instant communication. So, and, and Basecamp, frankly, is a huge part of how we, we make this arrangement work. So, so if you don't, if you, if you want to get into, you know, a kind of distributed working arrangement like this, if you don't want to use Basecamp, that's fine, but you definitely want something like that, some central place to coordinate. How long did it take you to get uh, familiar with the Basecamp code? Um, I'm sure there's a lot there. And one of the first things I think that you did was was just a lot of bug fixing. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, it seems like that would take quite a bit of familiar, familiarity with the code to be able to fix <coughs> bugs. Yeah, the, the first thing I really did was add the SFTP support to Basecamp so that people could upload files via SFTP to their servers. Um, and then after that, I did time zones. So a couple of really large things. The, the NetSFTP stuff uh, really only touched one small part of Basecamp, and so that was a good way to get my feet wet. Um, but the time zones was all over the all over the place, or you know, changing little bits here and little bits there. And so um, I did both of those in about a month and a half. Um, that was even before I was working full time for Thirty Seven Signals, so it was just part time on the side. And I think that's a real testimony to um, not even not just Basecamp, but Ruby on Rails, just how how easy it is for someone to jump into an existing set of code and quickly be brought up to speed with it. Um, I think it was probably uh, right around the time I was hired full time by Thirty Seven Signals that I was then made the custodian of Basecamp. David at that time was focusing on backpack and um, and things like that, and his uh, traveling was ramping up, and and so Basecamp really became my responsibility in a large degree, and so that uh, that familiarity that I gained quickly before that was very valuable. I don't think I've ever been able to jump into existing code anywhere else I've worked and be brought up to speed with it as quickly as that. Yeah, that d- does say something definitely. We've heard that, well, some people have picked up Rails and submit their patch, their first patch by the end of the first day, but mm-hmm. uh, actually doing significant work on a web application that many thousands of people are using and rolling that out live is uh, quite a different thing. So that's... Uh, Great to be able to pick it up so quickly. Yeah, it's it's really it really owes a lot to the Rails environment, the ability to to understand a complex application up front. Uh, moving along with that, uh, recently David in an interview, David said that uh, framework the best frameworks are extracted from solutions to real problems. Obviously, Basecamp started as just a mm-hmm. internet-type app, 
and recently you've uh, released Switch Tower, which is not really official right. yet, but uh, people are using it, and uh, mm-hmm. well, and you are using it. So tell us a little bit about Switch Tower and how that came out of a real problem that you were facing. Okay. Um, well, Switch Tower, first of all, is we're using it to automate the deployment of our applications, and that's its primary goal, although it, it can be used for a lot more than that. Um, and when I first came on with 37 Signals, David had a, a simple, straightforward way of deploying Basecamp, basically, because that was their only app, um, and it ran on a single box. And, uh, and so the deployment needs were very limited. It was just a matter of checking out the code, moving all the stuff over, restarting the servers, and away you go. And so he, he had a little automated thing to do that. Um, after I came on, um, shortly afterwards, we moved to a two-box configuration for Basecamp with a, a third database server. And so that complicated the, the deployment needs a bit. And David asked me to spend some time looking at a way to automate that, where we can deploy to two boxes, and we need it to be fairly atomic, so if something goes wrong, we can roll back on all the boxes involved and so forth. And so that was the first iteration of what we called the release manager that I wrote. And uh, it worked pretty well. We used that for several months. And that's what my original, when I, let's see, a few months ago, I, I blogged about about it and said that we'd be releasing it soon. But right about the time I wrote that, we started moving to a new um, server configuration where we have multiple machines. They're behind a uh, virtual private network. And so we have another... In order to deploy to them, we need to basically tunnel without using virtual private network software. We tunnel through a gateway server and deploy to all these machines. Anyway, so we needed to rethink our deployment software, and so that's when Switch Tower was born. David asked me to consider that again, and that's what I wrote. And and from the beginning with this one, I wrote it with the intent of releasing it up front, and so that's one reason it's it's usable by others so soon. I considered that from the, from the beginning. But yeah, basically what you do is you just specify all the machines in your configuration and what their roles are, whether they're an app server or a web server, or database server and so forth, and Switch Tower comes with a default set of tasks. Uh, once you define the roles of your machines, you can just say update the code to all the boxes, restart the servers, and so forth. And uh, it's it works pretty well. And and like most things in Rails, it's um, convention based instead of configuration. So um, if if you follow the conventions, you don't have to configure anything except the roles of of your machines. So. That's great, and it uh, well, like you say, conventions. Um, if you're familiar with writing a rake task, uh, mm-hmm. switch tower tasks seem to be pretty similar. I kind of went backwards. I was looking at switch tower, and then I happened to to look at some different rake tasks, and I realized, oh, you know, that's pretty yeah. similar. That's not too bad. I, I should uh, automate some of this stuff that I have to do. Yeah, yeah. Then that's that's the idea behind switch towers, just automation in general. It lets you execute tasks on multiple machines in parallel, and even do some transact some limited transaction type things. So you can 
roll back if, if a task goes bad or something. And and the the domain specific language I used for Switch Tower was very heavily influenced by Rake. I figure if something works, might as well go with it. So. Now, it definitely. Well, we've got Rails and uh, Switch Tower, a bunch of other things that uh, have been contributed, open sourced by Thirty Seven Signals, and yet you guys have a business to run. You got to. Uh, pay the bills all that how do you, uh how does that work as far as budgeting your time between putting a product together that's going to work for your company and then making that available documented so it can be uh released open source to the world um well obviously our our business comes first if if there's something that needs doing um at 37 signals that takes priority. But because we're running all of our applications on the the very latest version of Rails, like we're running it off of the the trunk, um, we it's in our best interest to make sure Rails is always stable. Um, we're very careful about the patches we accept and uh, we do try to you know have a very comprehensive test coverage so that you know we can know right away if something's broken, um, and so that's a big part of where the, the Rails development comes in. It's just as we're developing our applications, um, as we find bugs in our applications, um, we'll spend the time we need on on Rails to do that. Uh, David and I also spend a lot of our free time on Rails, um, working on patches. Especially, we're going to be ramping up here to. Uh, version 1.0 one of these days, uh, sooner hopefully than later, and uh, we're really going to start focusing on getting some of these patches and stuff in. But a lot of that comes in, in our free time as opposed to our work time. That seems like it would be tough, definitely. Uh, there are a lot of people who use Rails professionally and contribute to it, and a lot who have other jobs and contribute on, on their free time, but to be doing it as your job and as your free time is quite a commitment, but you must enjoy it. Oh, I do. I do. Uh, I mean, I've loved Ruby ever since I first discovered it, and Rails basically captures a lot, if not all, of what is good about Ruby and, and packages it packages it up really nice. So, yeah, it's, it's really a joy to work on the, the Rails code base. Um, I mean, I, I do have a family. I have other obligations. And it, it's hard to juggle all of that. I don't get to spend nearly as much time as I would like on Rails, but uh, I try and put in a few hours a week if I can. So, and uh, as we're moving towards the 1.0 and RubyConf and so forth, it would be, be really nice to start spending more time with that if I can. I'm really going to start making that a priority. Sure. And you're going? Are you going to be speaking at RubyConf also, or just no, attending? I'm just attending. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, how about, uh, obviously you've been involved with uh, Ruby for a while, but interest in Ruby has uh, just gone exponential, and a lot of that is obviously from Rails. Um, and even many people have straight out said, well, you know, I, w I want to learn Rails, I want to use Rails, but I don't really want to learn Ruby, so I'm going to do as much as I can without learning Ruby. Mm 
Um, what kind of things would you want to say to a new Rails programmer to just uh, let them know about the history, the the style, or the uh, culture of Ruby? Um, well, first of all, if someone were, were telling me I want to learn Rails but not Ruby, um, I, I would ask them to think really hard about why they don't want to learn Ruby. Like, what is it about Ruby that makes them think they don't want to learn it? Because, first of all, you're never going to be as, an, as effective a Rails programmer if you don't know Ruby. You don't have to be a Ruby expert, but there's a, there's a lot of really nice stuff you can do on top of Rails if you understand the basics of Ruby. And so that would be the one thing I would I would tell them, first of all, is really think hard about that decision. Um, second of all, Ruby is wonderful to learn. I mean, even if you've never learned any other programming language, um, there's a lot of people coming in with no other real significant programming experience and learning Ruby and loving it. And uh, the culture, I mean, you've got Why the Lucky Stiff. You just can't help but yeah. fall in love with the stuff he does. And uh, the poignant guide, and this is all just becoming part of the Ruby culture. It's, um, it seems like the Ruby culture, part of the Ruby culture, is focused on helping people learn Ruby, and that's one thing I've I've really, really um, loved about this this uh, culture, about the the community. It's just how willing they are to help and to teach um, in general. Which then goes get back again to you know make sure you really understand why you don't want to learn it because if you're going to be even the Rails community is of course separate from the Ruby community in a lot of ways but there is a fair bit of overlap and so if you're going to be doing something with Rails you're going to be encountering the Ruby community too and they're going to be anxious to help you learn it and there's a lot of stuff out there now to help you learn this I don't know if that answers your question or not but oh it definitely does and. Uh... Yeah. I understand. I was talking to Dwayne Johnson, who uh, yeah. said, "Oh yeah, I, I know Jameis." And I said, "Well, the famous Jameis Buck, you know, does he? <laughs> do you know him?" So he said, "Oh yeah, he speaks at the local Ruby group and yeah. we work on projects or whatever." Yeah, Dwayne, yeah, met him several times. Well, not, not to get too uh, p- personal here, but. Uh, Definitely many uh, people in the open source community are religious. Um, Larry Wall of Pearl, can I mention Pearl, uh, <laughs> has said that some of his missionary impulses uh, motiva- motivated him to give away Pearl as open source, and that was in the late 80s when open mm-hmm. source was less known and it wasn't making front page headlines. Um, and also, I believe Matt's has uh, been on some missionary excursions. Um, mm-hmm. How has uh, has your religion affected uh, your involvement with Ruby or open source, or do you think that uh, that's part of it at all? Yeah, I think it has, in a fair way. Um, a lot of the, the projects I tackle in my free time have been related to um, my religion. Um, family history is a, is a big part of the LDS faith. And, and so I've, I've done a fair bit of programming with you know, genealogical utilities, um, 
things to analyze genealogical data. Um, I've also um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of things like that. A lot of how I've learned Ruby has been through some of those, and so I'd say in that respect, my religion has definitely affected my work uh, in that way. Um, I don't know I can think of anything as significant as, like, Mott's and the, the pickaxe, where he'll say, um, in the Book of Mormon, there's a scripture that says, man is that he might, that man is that he may have joy, and, and Mott's quotes that in the pickaxe, saying that's why he why he worked worked on rubies so that programmers can be happy. And I don't know that I can say I had that significant an influence on the stuff I do, but uh, it has influenced me. I didn't I didn't know that uh, that's where it came from. That's that's interesting because definitely on the uh, a lot of the marketing materials with Rails, if, if they can be called that, it's often talked about uh, joy and programming mm-hmm. with joy. So that's fascinating. Yeah, well. It, David um, probably isn't influenced by the Book of Mormon that way, but uh, Mox was, I think. So yeah. Well, uh, finally, as uh, one of the top Rails programmers, I don't know if uh, I don't know if you have a title or with all that, <laughs> but uh, definitely one of, one of the first few to be given commit rights. Uh, where do you see Rails going in the future? Um, maybe what ways would you like to influence it? Um, what's the future of Rails? I think the future of Rails is simplicity. Um, a lot of people on the mailing list recently have voiced concerns about bloat, and uh, I know that everyone on the Rails core team is, is really sensitive about letting Rails get too big, become too much. Um, and so I think moving forward, it's it's really going to be keep Rails simple, as simple as it can be, and still fulfill its purpose. Um, of course, right now we're all really focused on 1.0, and a lot of that is um, not so much adding new features, but squashing the bugs. And so stability is the other big thing. Make sure that Rails is is good and stable, that it uh, works as advertised, um, that kind of thing. And so. I, I personally don't have any specific features in mind on my Rails wish list. At least none, none come to mind. Um, but uh, that's not to say we won't add any more features, but I definitely think we're going to be focusing on, on uh, you know, solidifying what we've got and, uh, and simplifying what possible. Yeah, I think that's significant. Definitely the... Uh much of the appeal of Rails is that it get, helps you to get things done with a minimal amount of code, and mm-hmm. uh, definitely there are a lot of people building onto it with generators and um, extra libraries and, and full-on web applications, so yeah. it's good to hear. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much for taking out some time in your... Uh, busy day. We appreciate all the things that you are doing, and we're looking forward to seeing what else is coming down the pike from uh, from 37 Signals and yeah. from you personally. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Jeffrey. Alright, and that will wrap it up for this issue of the Ruby on Rails podcast. We'll see you next time.